moments of farewell. The photographers are taking their last shots. Our space rocket is ready in the center of the cosmodrome. The countdown begins. Now only a few moments remain. All eyes fixed on the clock. 30 seconds. 10 seconds. gushes downward, and the great beast lifts slowly from the earth. We are about to create a new planet that we will call Sputnik. It is small, this first satellite, but after it, we will launch others. In the olden days, explorers like Vasco da Gama and Columbus had the good fortune to open up the terrestrial globe. Now we have the good fortune to open up space. And it is for those in the future to envy us our joy. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Anderson. You're listening to Episode 9 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Sputnik 1. The R-7 missile that carried Sputnik 1 was designed in 1953 by Sergei Korolev and his team. The R-7 consisted of five major parts. A 28-meter-long core stage, which was surrounded by four 19-meter strap-on boosters. It was 10.3 meters in diameter at the base. It weighed 22,000 kilograms empty. Once it was fueled with kerosene and liquid oxygen, it weighed 273,000 kilograms. The engines were designed by Valentin Glushko and his team. They produced a thrust of 510,000 kilograms. The R-7 was so big the launch site had to be designed from scratch at a remote location 1,400 miles from Moscow, Baikonur, Kakistan. It would take two years to transform Baikonur from a wasteland to the world's first spaceport. Toward the end of 1953, Korolev drafted a proposed decree for the Central Committee of the Communist Party, which included the possibility of using the R-7 to launch a satellite. However, while the draft was making its way to the top, mentions of the satellite were removed. Not until May 1954 did Korolev formally proposed the satellite launch to Dmitry Ustinov, Minister of Armaments. Korolev's proposal to Ustinov is so delicately phrased that the R-7 was not mentioned at all. In January of 1956, the Communist Party and the government gave Korolev permission to launch a satellite. Korolev immediately arranged for his old friend Mikhail Tikhonrofov and his team to join him in Baikonur. Tikhon Rothoff was working on a satellite concept at the Special Design Bureau in the Ural Mountains at the time. In April 1956, the first R-7 rockets were finished and ready for testing. The rockets came from Baikonur by rail, ready for assembly in the Baikonur Large Hangar. 
Assembly was done in the horizontal position. Static engine testing lasted until December 1956. In the meantime, launch equipment for the R-7 was installed at Baikonur. Korolev began preparation for the first flight he hoped would be in February of 1957. In March, after some setbacks, the first flight version of the R-7 was finally rolled horizontally by rail and lifted vertically to be set on the launch pad. The rocket stayed on the pad for two months of checkout. Finally, on May 15, 1957, the first R-7 was launched. Unfortunately, a propellant line ruptured, causing a fire and explosion that destroyed the R-7 about 90 seconds after launch. The rupture was caused by a sloppy assembly job in Korolev's own assembly plant. On June 9th, Korolev tried again. This time, the R-7 failed to fire because someone in the assembly plant had installed a fuel valve upside down. Korolev was a proud man and tried to blame failures like these on others. His favorite scapegoat was Valentin Glushko, the engine designer. On July 11th, a R-7 successfully launched, but as it rose, it began to tilt and eventually it went out of control and disintegrated. This time, the problem was the guidance system. Finally, on August 21st, a R-7 was successfully launched and flew to a range of 4,000 miles, setting a record as the world's first flight of intercontinental distance. The payload was a mock-up hydrogen bomb. Wildly excited about the success, Korolev stayed up until 3 a.m., talking with staff members about the prospects of spaceflight. The first successful flight was quickly followed by another on September 7th. Nikita Khrushchev was in attendance. Korolev had the ear of Stalin and now his successor, Khrushchev. I have an excerpt from uh, Khrushchev's memoirs that explains the relationship between Khrushchev and Korolev. This is what Khrushchev wrote. Not long after Stalin's death, Korolev came to a Politburo meeting to report on his work. I don't want to exaggerate, but I'd say we gawked at what he showed us as if we were a bunch of sheep seeing a new gate for the first time. When he showed us one of his rockets, we thought it looked like nothing but a huge cigar-shaped tube, and we didn't believe it could fly. Korolev took us on a tour of a launching pad and tried to explain to us how the rocket worked. We were like peasants in a marketplace. We walked around and around the rocket, touching it, tapping it to see if it was sturdy enough. We did everything but lick it to see how it tasted. We had absolute confidence in Comrade Korolev. We believed him when he told us that his rocket would not only fly but that it would travel 7,000 kilometers. When he expounded or defended his ideas, you could see passion burning in his eyes, and his reports were always models of clarity. He had unlimited energy and determination, and he was a brilliant organizer. End quote. Now back to 1956. With the success of the R-7, Korolev's attention turned to the satellite he so desperately wanted to launch. 
The current prototype satellites were far too complex and not reliable. The scientists who created them continually asked for launch delays. Korolev believed that if he postponed too much longer, the Soviet Union would be second to the U.S. in the satellite race. But like von Braun, Korolev had political difficulties to overcome as well. He wanted to proceed with a launch using a simple, lightweight satellite. He took his case to the State Commission for the R-7 ICBM. His first attempt was unsuccessful. The commission was too cautious and did not want to stick their neck out. Korolev decided to try again using a different tactic. He challenged the State Commission to ask the Central Committee of the Communist Party if the Soviet Union should try to be the first country in the world to launch a satellite. Korolev knew that the Central Committee would give him permission. Now, Korolev's challenge put the State Commission in an awkward position. They did not want to be scapegoats if the U.S. launched first. The State Commission's attitude changed to... Well, we don't have to bother the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Go ahead, Comrade Korolev, and proceed. But make sure it works. With the Commission's nervous acquiescence, Korolev rushed the simple satellite development, and it only took about a month. The result was a plain, 23-inch diameter polished metal sphere with four external radio antennas. It weighed 83.6 kilos and contained only a radio transmitter, batteries, and temperature measuring instruments. It was a very hectic month of development. And while the satellite was simple, the attention given to its manufacture was unsparing, especially for Korolev himself. Korolev, with his iron character, was able to influence the attitude of people. The party directed that new paint be put on the factory walls. Korolev put the satellite mock-up on a special stand draped in velvet in order that the workers would show reverence toward it. He supervised the carrying out of the production schedule every day personally. But there were technical problems even with the simple Sputnik. It required precise thermal control and it had to be vacuum sealed to assure reliable performance. The scientists had to find new techniques of manufacturing the surfaces in order to achieve the necessary optical and thermal qualities. They had no experience in this work, and they needed vacuum chambers. Korolev insisted that both halves of the Sputnik's metallic sphere be polished until they shone. This was because the radio equipment people were concerned that the system would overheat and they wanted the orbiting sphere to reflect as many of the sun's rays as possible. An idea of how intense things became during this month of preparation for the launch of the simplest satellite came in late August during a test of the separation process of the Sputnik from its carrier. The test seemed to be moving along normally when all of a sudden Korolev began yelling at the plant's chief engineer. Korolev was berating him for the poor quality of the surface of the mock-up of the Sputnik. Yes, I said mock-up, not the real Sputnik. Korolev was informing the chief engineer what he already knew, that the surface is really important in the flight because the heat conditions of the Sputnik depend upon it. 
But that's not what they were testing then. They were testing an entirely different process. When told this, Korolev said angrily, quote, This ball will be exhibited in museums, end quote. Of course, the real Sputnik was very polished and taken care of very well. People in the space room worked in white smocks, and they all performed their operation in great thoroughness. With two days left before the launch, October 2, 1957, the carrier rocket was rolled out to the launch pad. Korolev walked in front together with all the other chief designers. They walked in silence the entire one-and-a-half-kilometer trip from the assembly building to the pad. Finally, the launch day came, October 4, 1957. The Russian journalist Yaroslav Golovanov describes the launch as follows. Quote, Korolev had arrived early and left his car on the concrete apron. The wind was cold and piercing. He raised the collar of his heavy old overcoat. From behind him came the wooden voice of the public address system. Attention! Time check in. One minute. Prepare to fuel. The liquid oxygen was fuming like the white steam of a locomotive. The rocket was being shrouded. Rime was creeping up from the bottom of the oxygen tank, and soon it would be all white. Beautiful. Later, immediately before blastoff, he sat with his shoulders hunched on his usual seat at his personal periscope in the bunker. He was shivering slightly. Zero minus one minute. Repeat. Zero minus one minute. Switch to start. Korolev brought his face close to the periscope and felt the unpleasant sensation of the cold sweat from his face on the black rubber shield of the eyepieces. The white oxygen cloud disappeared. The vent valves had been closed. Auxiliary engines pressurized. Main engines pressurized. Launch begun. Ground disengage. Korolev clung to the periscope. The rocket was right before his eyes. He saw how the cable tower swung away after the command. Now nothing connected the rocket with the launcher. Ignition. Preliminary boost. He saw an instantaneous flash, a short flicker before the brown cloud of dust and smoke raging in the whirlwind of the engines rapidly engulfing everything around. A blinding ball of light flared beneath it. Main boost! The rocket hung motionless. It'd be a few moments before it rises. It really looks as if it were pondering for a second whether to start or not. How tedious and long are these instants of immobility. Take off! There it goes! There it goes! The giant white dagger is racing upward, its body looking transparent and unreal in the dazzle. Korolev's fingers tightened around the black grips of the periscope. The whole of his thick-set, heavy body stiffened. Only now did a jubilant voice penetrate his consciousness, grabbing over and over in its excitement. All systems stable. Flight proceeding normally. Pressure in chambers normal. All systems stable. And at last, separation complete. Systems, thought Korolev. But go on shouting, my dear boys, all your dear friends. A wave of unendurable warmth and gratitude to all the people swept over him. He felt a lump in his throat. Is this really all? Have we really done it? Of course, of course. It's time to phone Moscow and report. Uh, but let's wait for one orbit to complete. Then we'll report.
End quote. Then the rocket left the radio zone. The communication with Sputnik ended. The small room where the radio receivers were was overcrowded. Time dragged on slowly. Waiting built up the stress. Everyone stopped talking. There was absolute silence. All that could be heard was the breathing of the people and the quiet static on the loudspeaker. And then, from very far off, they appeared, at first very quietly, and then louder and louder. Those beeps that confirmed Sputnik was in orbit and functioning correctly. Once again, everyone rejoiced. There were kisses, hugs, and cries of hoorah. The austere men who were greeted from space by their satellite had tears in their eyes. At three minutes past midnight Moscow time, Sputnik 1 became the first man-made object to orbit the Earth. Korolev said, I've been waiting all my life for this day. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.